The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with each and every one of you. Uh, with the love of our Savior, I welcome you to worship. I am Ron Cox, one of the associate pastors here at Rivermont, serving in this service with Dr. David Weber, our senior pastor, Peggy Betcher on the organ, and our chapel choir. Uh, will the worshiping congregation please stand for the responsive call to worship from the Psalms? Let us go to his dwelling place. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might.
most gracious Father, we praise You for sending Your Son as one of us to live for us, to die for us, that we might have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal peace with You through the blood of the Lamb. In Your holy presence, remembering the perfect sacrifice which Jesus offered for us, we acknowledge that we have strayed from Your ways like lost sheep. We confess that while You provide security for Your people in the midst of all the troubles of this world, We sometimes react in fear and we doubt Your goodness. Father, we sometimes forget that You are pure, that You are powerful, and that Your steadfast love is real and true. Father, forgive us for the times we forget that You have given us a secure future, a posterity in this place, and in generations yet unborn. All who will exalt the name of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Please have mercy upon us. Forgive us our sins according to the promise of the Gospel. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, the Scripture affirms that Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. To the praise of His glorious grace in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Dear brothers and sisters, as we repent of our sins and trust in Christ for our salvation, God graciously forgives us our sin and sets us free to live for Him. We sing, hallelujah, what a Savior, hallelujah, what a friend. On behalf of the Rivermont family, we give thanks to God for the blessing of our visitors this morning. Uh, To help us better connect you to ongoing ministry and fellowship opportunities, we invite our visitors to please fill out the blue uh, Rivermont Connect card that you'll find on the Purex in front of you. Uh, Fill those out and drop it in the offering plate later in the service. Now our children, pre-K through first grade, may be dismissed for Children's Church. And um, now would the rest of you please greet one another with the love of our God and Savior. Good morning, everyone. 
invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We're going to be in Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18 this morning. Now, this past February, during the Super Bowl, an ad campaign was launched, may have, if you have seen it, called He Gets Us. A private group of Christian businessmen invested millions of dollars into producing and airing these provocative commercials in which they explore how Jesus sympathizes with us in our need and our weakness. Each commercial, if you've seen them, features a series of photos in which people are in some sort of distress, and then it ends with the tagline, He Gets Us. Now, I'm somewhat ambivalent to the effectiveness of these commercials to actually draw people to Christ and the political message that seems to be embedded in some of the topics they covered. However, there is a deep truth in the statement that Jesus gets us, that Jesus understands and can sympathize with each and every one of us. In fact, this is the very truth that is at the center of our passage for this morning. Jesus is not a God who is separated from His people and their troubles. Rather, the Word of God teaches us that He became man. And as a real and true human being, He endured all the same temptations and struggles that all of us must endure in this life. Now, for those of you who don't know this, I am a part of a club, or maybe better yet, a group. We call ourselves Army Brats. We are the children of the men and women who serve in the U.S. Army, and we share a unique set of circumstances in our upbringing. The most obvious is that we have lived in many different places. By the time I was in seventh grade, when my father finally retired from the army, I had lived in at least ten different homes. Not only have we lived in many different places, we've often lived in the same places. And so when we meet fellow army brats, we always ask, oh, what bases were you stationed at and at what years? Because a lot of times we have overlap. Many of us lived overseas. I was born in Germany. I lived in Belgium for several years. And so we have this unique experience. We know what the shopette and the PX and the commissary are. We know the excitement of rummaging through our dad's old MREs for gum and that cheese spread. But we also know what it's like to leave your best friend every year or two. And to have to make new friends. We know what it's like to move schools in the middle of the year and have to relearn topics that we've already learned or catch up with ones that we haven't covered before. We know the stress of a parent being deployed for months or even years. The fear of what might happen if they don't come home and the strangeness of their eventual return. When you have been raised in the military environment, you have this special kinship and connection with those who experience the same things because you know that they understand you in a way that others just can't. And I'm sure that each and every one of you have experiences that are similar. You have lived through a unique circumstance that makes you a member of a group, for better 
or for worse. I've been told that missionary kids have a very similar experience as military children. Our pastor's kids live through unique experience, and so when they meet other pastor's kids, they have a kinship. Maybe you've gone through the difficulty of losing a parent at a young age, or you have endured the struggle of a certain disease. You've gone through cancer and chemotherapy, and you meet somebody else who has gone through the same struggles, and you have a kinship. Whatever the experience, it's comforting to be with those who have gone through the same thing because it means that you don't have to explain yourself. You don't need to feel alone. There's someone who gets you. In our passage for this morning, the author shows that we can trust in Jesus because He is one with us. While He is the Creator of all things, the Sovereign Lord of the earth, Jesus is also a human being who has shared in the struggles and the weaknesses and the miseries of this life. This is one of the greatest mysteries and comforts of the Christian faith. The eternal Son of God became man. The divine nature joined itself with the finite human nature by taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He was born. He grew. He learned. He lost. He struggled. He was hungry. He was lonely. He was anxious. He was hopeful. He was cold. He was abandoned. He was loved and He was hated. Do you feel sometimes as though there's no one who understands you? As though your thoughts and fears and temptations are unique to you alone? Well, take heart, for there is one who does understand you. Not merely one who has a knowledge of what you have gone through and your struggles, but one who has entered in, who has endured what you are facing and has overcome. So hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you in this time. Lord, and I particularly lift up those who this morning feel alone, who feel as though nobody understands the struggles that they are enduring. I pray, Lord, that your word would give to them comfort and that they would see the truth that Christ 
sympathizes with us. And that because of His work in this life, and His death upon the cross, and His victory over death, we have one who truly understands us, and gets us, and will deliver us. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I am also a member of a different group that I'm not quite as proud to be a part of. It's the group who don't like roller coasters. <clears throat> it's not really that I'm scared of them. It's more that I get really anxious and very fearful, and I will object with my whole being if you try to get me on one. Now, being a part of this group means that you pretend that you just don't like lines or that you get motion sick, and so, you know, roller coasters, I just don't feel good when I go on one. But whenever there is talk of going to King's Dominion or Six Flags or even Disney World, I look for the people that are in this group because these are the ones I want to hang out with because they're not going to make me face this fear. Now in our passage, we see that the first reason that we can trust in Jesus is because unlike us roller coaster fears who run away from our fear, Jesus actually faces fear and overcomes it. Listen to verses 14 through 15 again. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. Now, in becoming a man, Jesus shares in our flesh and blood. He is fully man. It's important that we understand this, that Jesus wasn't some sort of a superman. He wasn't God and man mixed together to create some new sort of being. Rather, Jesus is a real and true flesh and blood human being. And because he is a human being, he was subject to all the fears that we face and the ultimate fear that we face, death itself. We see this on the night before Jesus was to die. We read about his desperate prayer before the Father that he might be delivered from dying this death. In Matthew 26, we read, Then he said to them, his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, Jesus' crucifixion was not a joyous occasion. Later in Hebrews, we'll read that Jesus despised the shame of it. But the only way for the fear of death 
to be destroyed was for Jesus to willingly face it and endure it without divine intervention, to face it as a human in all of our weakness and frailty. That is to say, Jesus had to face the same death that every single human being must face so that he could destroy the power that death has over us. It is as close to a law in psychology as you can get. If you want to overcome a fear, then you must voluntarily face that fear. And so, if you are afraid of elevators, then you must choose willingly to get on the elevator. Those who are fearful of spiders must choose to look at and maybe even pick up a spider if they ever want to overcome that fear. Those who are scared of roller coasters need to choose to get on one and ride it. Because running away from your fear only makes it worse. You're not going to get braver by running away. You will only grow more courageous if you willingly face whatever it is that you fear. But how do we overcome fear of something like death? How do we face death and then live in the freedom of no longer fearing it? There is no way to do that because once you face death, Once you taste it, your life is over. There's no going back. But what our text is telling us is that Jesus went to the cross, faced death on our behalf, and then on the third day he rose from the dead, defeating the power of death and the one who holds that power, Satan himself. And because Jesus faced death and overcame it, We who are now in Christ can face death without fear because the sting of death has been removed. For all of those who are in Christ, we know that because He has risen from the dead, so too will we. And even more than that, because Jesus rose from the dead, we are accounted as those who have already died and have already risen. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you are in Christ, then you have died already. And you are now alive in Christ. Your life is hidden in Him, and there is nothing that this world can do to separate you from your life in Him. This is how Christ establishes His heavenly kingdom and expands His kingdom on this earth. You see, from the beginning of civilization, the power that the kingdoms of this earth have over their citizens is the threat of death. Even as Scripture says, they do not wield the sword in vain. This is the ultimate trump card of coercion. If you don't obey, then we will kill you. And this is exactly what Pilate said to Jesus. As he stood before Pilate, he looked at Jesus and said, Do you not know that I have the power to release you or to condemn you? I hold the sword and I can kill you. Just submit. But Jesus came 
And he faced our fear of death and he overcame our fear of death and he destroyed death itself. Therefore, now all who are in Christ are no longer subject to the fear of death because we serve a king who has delivered us from this fear. And we are citizens of a kingdom where death no longer holds sway. I want you just to take a moment and reflect upon this question. What would your life look like if you actually lived into that truth? What would your life look like if you no longer were subject to the fear of death? What other fears could you face? What stands for truth and the gospel would you be willing to take? There is no limit to how courageous you might become if you fully embrace the truth that you have died in Christ and you are now alive in Christ, delivered from death itself. Now you might think that your fear that you experience is unique to you. You might believe that you are justified in your fears and anxieties. And I'm not going to say I understand all that you are fearful of. For I haven't faced what you have faced. I have not experienced what you have experienced. And some of you have tasted hardships and traumas that I can only imagine. But there is one who has faced your fears. He has faced the trauma of abuse and loss and injustice of hunger and abandonment and want. He has faced torture and shame, and he has faced death itself, and he has destroyed it. You can trust Jesus with your deepest fears because he gets us, and he has delivered us. And when it comes to our fear of death, We are not only under the threat of physical death, which is enough, but we are also under the threat of what the Word of God calls the second death. That is the judgment and the wrath of God. It is one of the most difficult doctrines for us to embrace the doctrine of hell because we do not want to believe that we deserve eternal punishment for our sins. And we do not want to believe that other good quote-unquote people deserve such punishment for their sin. To put it another way, we think that the punishment does not fit the crime. We don't think that we are all that bad, and I admit that I struggle with this doctrine despite the fact that it is clearly biblical. And I struggle because I am so prideful and because I do not fully understand the holiness of God. You see, the Word of God teaches us that the wages of sin is death. It teaches us that by our sin, we have been separated from God. And that those who die apart from Christ not only face physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Sin makes us infinitely guilty because it is a violation against the infinitely worthy holiness of God. And therefore, the punishment does fit the crime and must be eternal in nature. 
This is the reality that all humanity must face. There is none that is exempt from this guilt. There is none without sin. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But we must trust Jesus because He gets us even in our sin. Look at what verse 17 of our text says, and I'll explain what I mean by He gets us in our sin. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the one way that Jesus is not like us is that he is free from sin. He never personally sinned. Nevertheless, what this verse teaches us is that Jesus took on the guilt of our sin as he offered himself as a sacrifice. The priests of the Old Testament would enter into the temple wearing 12 stones embedded in their shirt. And these stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they would bear these stones before the presence of God and they would make a sacrifice of blood to turn aside God's punishment for the sins of the people that they represented. To satisfy His just wrath against Israel's rebellion, the priests would represent the people before God and offer a sacrifice. And here in verse 17, we see that Jesus, in dying on the cross, has acted as a priest. He is a high priest in the service of God. But instead of offering a lamb or a goat, he has offered his own infinitely valuable blood, bearing his people before God as our high priest. The word propitiation means to satisfy wrath. It means to pay the penalty for sin. And in saying that Jesus made a propitiation for the sins of his people, our text is telling us that Jesus took on the sin of his people. He took on your sin, Christian, so that God's word says Jesus became sin. Or elsewhere, that Jesus became a curse for us. And because he became sin on the cross, Jesus endured the infinite wrath of God Almighty. When we declare that Jesus descended into hell, what we are declaring is that on the cross, Jesus underwent the full and complete execution of divine justice against our sin. He endured the eternal torments of hell on the cross so that His people would not have to taste one drop of it. The debt that you owe because of your sin is so great that you could never repay it no matter how long you sought to repay it. There is no eternity long enough. And therefore, Jesus took on your debt and He paid it fully. 
the cost, eternal death. The payment, the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ, a propitiation for sin. Why must we trust in Jesus? Because He alone could pay the price for our sins. He gets us. He understands the weight of our sin because He carried the weight of our sin and He paid for it. Now at this point, there are some who might object to this idea that Jesus gets us. They might say, there's no way that He could possibly get us if He never sinned. How could Jesus understand what it means to be a human if He never erred? Sure, the text says that He took on our sin, but if He never gave in, what does He know of sin's power? Doesn't the saying go, to err is human? However, this is a wrong way of understanding temptation and sin. To sin is to give in to temptation. It means that you do not endure sin or temptation's full power. An analogy might help. Say that you are planning to be a part of our 24-hour yeah, our fast that we do once a month. You're like, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to be a part. You skip breakfast and you make it to the noontime prayer meeting. And halfway through the prayer meeting, all you can do is think about food. All you want to do is eat. And you don't care what it is. A PB&J and a glass of milk. A bag of chips. Some saltines. A hamburger on the way home. Anything. And you decide, I've made it long enough. I'm holy enough. It's time to eat. And as soon as the prayer meeting is over, you dash out of there and you go and eat the first thing you can find. Now, on the other hand, say that you endure. You push through the stomach pains. You go back to work. You wait until you get home. Dinner is being prepared. You patiently wait for it to be served. And you break your fast 24 hours from the last time you ate. And just full disclosure, I've been both of these people during this monthly fast, okay? <laughs> Which version of yourself knew the temptation of hunger more? Which version of yourself understood the full weight or the full weight of being hungry. Was it the one who gave in or the one who endured? Well, of course, it's the one who waited. And the same can be said of temptation. Jesus understands all of our temptations, not because he gave in to them, but precisely the opposite, because he never gave in to them. He never had the release of the tension. He never allowed himself the ease of lying or the satisfaction of pride. He never gave in to lust or to murderous thoughts. Rather, he carried the full load of temptation to the very end, and therefore, he understands temptation better than than any one of us ever could because he endured the full weight of temptation. Look at how this is explained in verse 18. It says, 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, he suffered temptation to the fullest, just like you, but he endured. He gets you. Later in Hebrews chapter 4, we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Why can you trust in Jesus? Why can you turn to Him in times of need and want? Because He has gone through the same hardships and struggles and temptations because He gets you. But even more than that, You must turn to Him because He can deliver you from these temptations. See, one of the problems of spending time with people who get you is that it's easy to make excuses for your excesses and vices. Right? You go to the bar because the guys get you, but they also encourage you to drink more than you should. You like to talk with other stay-at-home moms because they get what you're going through, but... They also encourage you in your tendency to complain about your husband or the needs of your children. There's comfort in talking with your old neighborhood buddies about the glory days of high school, but such conversations make you covetous of your past opportunities and not grateful for your current blessings. This is one of the struggles of the internet. You can go and you can find the most niche group of people that are like you and they encourage you in all of your idiosyncraticness that you will continue to go down the path of sin. When you are with people who get you, they tend to lead you in the wrong way. But Jesus gets us and he helps us. He understands our fears and our weaknesses, but he doesn't keep us there. He doesn't say, oh, I get you. It doesn't matter. Rather, he suffers all of our temptations so that he might help us and deliver us from our temptations. And therefore, we must go to him in our weakness. We must go to him in our fears, not so that we can be reinforced in them, but so that we can be delivered from them. Early in the church, there was a controversy about the true nature of Jesus's incarnation, how it is that the eternal Son of God became man. How human could Jesus actually be? There was one group called the Docetists who claimed that Jesus wasn't actually a physical being, but only seemed to be physical. He was kind of like a ghost. It just looked like he was there. Another group taught that Jesus was divine, but that his divine nature subsumed his human nature, that he was just kind of, as I said earlier, just kind of this superhuman type being. And a third group taught that Christ was merely wearing a mask of humanity, like a costume. But none of these attempts to explain the nature of Christ are sufficient to explain what the Bible clearly teaches. Namely, that in one person, there are two distinct natures, fully divine and fully human. They are not mixed together, but they both exist in Christ. 
You see, if Jesus were not fully divine, he could not win the battle against sin and Satan. His payment would not have been sufficient to redeem his people. However, if he were not fully human, he could not act as our representative, as our priest. He could not be the one who bears us before the throne of God. He could not sympathize with our weaknesses, our face, our fears, and deliver us. One of the early church fathers addressed this problem. His name was Gregory of Nazianzus. And he vigorously fought to defend the biblical view of Christ. And he famously wrote, Whatever is not assumed has not been redeemed. And what that means is that if there is any aspect of the human nature that Jesus did not take to himself, did not assume, then that aspect has not been redeemed. If Jesus is anything less than fully human, then the fullness of our humanity cannot and is not saved. But what our text tells us is that Jesus has saved us to the uttermost because he has become like us in every way. He has redeemed us from all of our fears, from all of our temptations, and ultimately he has redeemed us from all of our sins. And so we must look to Christ. We must trust in Christ. Because He not only gets you, but Christ alone can save you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you now in this time, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us the faith and the trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might live into the reality that we are no longer slaves to the fear of sin and to the fear of death, but that we have been delivered from them both through Christ. Oh God, would you release the men and the women and the children of this body from their fear and they might see that they have died and they have risen and they are now alive in Christ. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen. Well, if you would at this time rise as we come to proclaim our faith together, our affirmation of faith is printed for you in the bulletin. We will say together the Nicene Creed. So I ask you now, Christian, what is it that we believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, 
and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. may be seated. As we come to prayer, I would remind you that you're all invited to join the Rivermont family uh, today at 4 p.m. for an hour of prayer. Uh, we gather in the chapel. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us approach the throne of grace. Dear Heavenly Father, we exalt you for the perfections of your Son, our merciful and faithful High Priest, Jesus Christ. For the Savior who died our death, who takes our hands and leads us to You, who fills the pain we feel, who sympathizes with us with tenderness and love, we praise You and we thank You. For Your church, by the power of the Spirit, help us to live in the mighty grip of Jesus Christ. For He has conquered sin, death, and even our fears, securing our abundant and eternal life to the glory of Your grace. For mission and ministry, we pray Your ongoing blessing for Umberto Alvarez and sports outreach in El Salvador. Please guide Umberto and his team as they use sports ministry to share the gospel that many would come to saving faith in Christ. Bless them as they plan through board and team meetings to continue sowing the gospel for an abundant harvest in Jesus. Dear Father, we now lift before you those whom we love. For Jackson and Sydney Ankeny, giving thanks for their wedding, we pray that their marriage and all of our marriages will reflect the love that exists between Christ and His bride, the church. For Joya and Myra Colquitt, giving thanks for their baptisms this day. May they and every covenant child in our family of faith grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, Father, may we be faithful in prayer for our children and youth, faithful in reading the Word to them and bringing them to worship and encouraging them in our homes, in school, in church, and especially in Jesus Christ. For our youth and their upcoming retreat at the Peaks Retreat and Adventure Center, please bless them with open hearts for Your Word and joyful fellowship with one another. For Kay Albee, Tom Chafin, Calvin Dameron, Scott Farrell, Nadine Gilmore, Doris McIntyre, Connie Pearson, Joan Pinnock, Priscilla Ribera Cummings, and Pastor Lowell Sykes, together with their families, please provide your healing mercies and peace. For Melissa and Jim Stanley, grieving the loss of their son Parker. For Sarah and Mark Kuno, grieving the loss of Sarah's father Ted. Please give comfort and hope in Jesus Christ. For our church family as brothers and sisters, help us to show the grace of our Sa Savior as we carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. In all these things, we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord, who has taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As an act of worship, I invite our chapel choir to come forward as we also now respond to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ through the giving of ourselves and through the giving of His tithes and our offerings.
As printed in your bulletins, let us pray together. Almighty and gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise for all your goodness to us and over all creation. But above all, we give thanks for the gift of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, in whom alone we have life and peace and everlasting joy. In his name, we offer our hearts to you eagerly and entirely, and we pray that you will bless and multiply these tokens of our lives and use them for the sake of your kingdom throughout the earth to the glory of your name. Amen.
Children of God, receive now the Lord's blessing over you as you go forth into this world. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.